what's going on? And you were like, yeah, Russia's just invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And from then it just all kicked off. We had no idea what was going on and it just felt so weird for us to be just carrying on our lives, working in a restaurant, serving Mm. people mashed potato. It felt so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Today I'm joined by David Sharkey. David and I met in the restaurant that I started working in in 2020. Since then, we have been stayed. F- we stayed friends, haven't we, Sharky? For the most part. Yeah. Okay. I guess. Moving on. <laughs> He's helped me a lot with my <laughs> mental health and grief, and I had the honour of celebrating his marriage to his wonderful wife Victoria, and back in April. But more importantly, in November 2022, David made the journey to Ukraine to distribute aid packages, where he was then documenting his experience and recently published his book, Remember. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Gabby. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You're so welcome. <laughs> so you were born and bred in Edinburgh. Yep. And yep. you met your wife, Victoria, who's Ukrainian. Um, mm-hmm. You were working together in a restaurant. We were working together, yeah, down at the Botanics. And she thought you were gay, because I remember. Yes. <laughs> in the wedding, <laughs> she, um, I think, who was it that made the speech? Was it your best man? And he said, like, oh, and uh, actually, Victoria, when she first met him, was like, are you gay? My best man stole that from my speech. Oh. So when, when I got up to do my speech, <laughs> he had taken the starting segment of my speech. <laughs> I've not quite forgiven him for that yet. And now you're married with a kid. Yes. Yeah. When you guys met back in, when was it? Oh, now we were talking about it yesterday, so 2016. Okay. Met, actually, yeah. And had you been to Ukraine before your trip recently? Yes, we, so we actually, we went over to Ukraine, um, I think in total it was three times. Okay, so it wasn't off your top first of my head. Um, the The last time I'd been there actually was to be the best man at a wedding. Mm-hmm. So the last time I was in Ushkarut was in June 2020, I think. So 2020, around that time mm-hmm. for the wedding. Uh, and it was about 30 degrees and I was wearing a kilt. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and then I was just getting orders barked at me in Ukrainian for what I had to do. Um, and when I was walking through Ushkarut, which is the city that Victoria's from, mm-hmm. we're right in the border with Slovakia and Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, I had people coming up to me wanting pictures taken with me. You and, and your kilt. Yeah. Oh, people love it. My, my parents got married in France in like the city centre of Toulouse and there was all these Scottish men wearing their kilts and people were taking photos of them. Everyone loves it. They love it. They also think we're mental. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that that was I had I had a lot of great experiences actually of Ukraine before that. Yeah, of course. Um, and we obviously have good friends over there, uh, and it was always it was always such a nice place to go because it was so welcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up spending on the previous trip we spent a week in a farm um, near the city of Rivna as well. Mm-hmm. So we travelled a little bit around Ukraine, mm-hmm. not a great deal, but a little and what, bit. What did what were your impressions of Ukraine? at that mm. time very different to what i imagined in my head before i met victoria oh really yeah because I, I always thought ukraine you know really poor <laughs> had all the stereotypes in my head some of the stereotypes were kind of confirmed <laughs> when we were picked up by a horse and carriage to get <laughs> taken to the uh, farm um and that was a bit weird yeah but most of them most of the things that I experienced, they were very, very positive. People and were very so you were friendly. surprised? Yeah. 
Yeah. People were very friendly. It didn't matter mm. that I didn't speak the language that we made do and yeah, it was great. So it's always yeah. been like ever since you met Victoria, you've always obviously had a soft spot for Ukraine. It's been something that's really important to you and obviously her family. And now your son is half Ukrainian. Yeah, oh definitely. I mean, the, the people were so. There's a, there's a warmth and there's a sense of community in Ukraine. So it's it's a country that's been through a lot a very bad century of history, and it's made the people very very tough in some ways. Uh, it's made it quite a yeah a tough society to grow up in, but it's also meant that people have put a lot more value in community mm-hmm. uh, and into each other because you know people would have to rely on each other for even just simple necessities mm-hmm. um and you've got very close-knit communities there you know so what made you what like what fueled you to go because i remember when you first told me actually you didn't even tell me do you remember how <laughs> i find out from the manager at our work like she just kind of spoke casually about it. she went oh yeah and like you know shark is going to ukraine and i remember my jaw dropped because i thought yeah. wait because obviously like when you hear something like that and you think about someone that you care about going to you know a war-torn country and like, especially from what's like portrayed in the media in the uk like what i was imagining was a bit different from what i read in your book especially mm. at the start of your journey yeah um and I remember I texted you and I was like, what's this I hear about you <laughs> heading into Ukraine? And you were like, Look, well, obviously I wanted to tell you face to face, but it's something that I need to do. So mm. what made you want to, what made you take that decision? Well, obviously the same as anyone. We'd seen the news and we'd seen what had been happening. I really kind of felt compelled to do something more. But the real instigator the real catalyst to actually go and do that was the people that I met in relation to it so the people at sunflower scotland the charity I ended up going with was the big thing as well i could see the work that they were doing and i could see well this is one of the very important things you don't go to a country like ukraine you don't go into a war-torn country unless you know people that know what they're doing mm-hmm. know the country well know people in the country know what's safe what isn't safe um, and I counted myself as very fortunate that I met Oleg and I met uh, other people through the organisation who knew what they were talking about. So when Oleg came back the second time from Ukraine, uh, he told me about the work that they'd been doing. And to be honest, he was a very big design factor in that because it's seldom that you meet people that have clear motivations that have a a very clear vision of what they want to do that isn't wrapped up in themselves and they're trying to do something good and i think in those situations it's very very good to try and put your weight behind these people and support them because that's what they need they've got the brain they've got the knowledge they've got the drive but they need that support Mm from people just to try and achieve all the things they want to so when i met oleg after he came back the second time how did you meet him i met him through sunflower i met him at a a couple of fundraisers that we'd done and i'd also met him when we were (laughs) ironically something that chargrins him to this day is that i met him as well when we were um piling uh, well when we we're getting supplies and putting them onto a truck so to go from scotland to yeah to ukraine. to ukraine so 
that was a prime example of the kind of thing they were doing. They were being innovative and they were using their initiative to really make things happen. Mm-hmm. And this so is Sunflower Scotland. Sunflower charity. Scotland started literally about two days after the war. Oh, wow. Okay. And it launched and it was so proactive that they contacted people in Ukraine, so it's delivery drivers, long mm-hmm. distance, uh, long haul delivery drivers with huge trucks. And straight away they were like, well, if you're coming into Britain with goods and you're returning empty, then why don't we just fill your truck? We'll pay the fuel for you. We'll pay the um, anything that you need for the, the taxis or tariffs on borders or what, any, 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 any expense mm-hmm. that they need was paid for by Sunflower. So that was, that was initiated within two or three weeks of the war starting. I so they were straight out the blocks. I was with you. Mm-hmm. We were in the restaurant together mm-hmm. when, and we. I remember we were in the back, and we were both looking at our phones. I remember just turning to you, being like, "What's going on?" And you were like, "Yeah, Russia's just invaded Ukraine," mm-hmm. and from then it just all kicked off. Yeah. And I I remember it so clearly because I remember how obviously, Victoria was extremely upset. We had no idea what was going on, and it just felt so weird for us to be just carrying on our lives working in a restaurant serving mm. people mashed potato it felt so wrong <laughs> yeah yeah I remember here's really, your mash yeah literally now let me check the news yeah um. it felt so weird just like carrying on with our lives while like a war had just you know exploded in like europe it was so odd <laughs> oh I, I definitely for the first week well no i'd say longer than that but certainly for the first few days week and a bit longer I was in shock Mm. I was definitely shocked the day it happened yeah because you know there's not been a war like that in European soil in so long of that magnitude anyway Mm -hmm. and um, yeah I mean it was and I think it, it just it hits on a different level when you know people that are there when you've been there um and yeah i mean it, it was just a really shocking day and but that kind of shock that yeah i don't know i, I feel like when i started coming out of that shock i was like well can't we have to do something about this mm-hmm. you know it, it really it became not an option to be motionless so how long after the war like breaking out did it take you to decide to to go to ukraine I knew that Oleg had been in Ukraine. I think it was through his wife, Elvira. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually messaged him when he was still in Ukraine on his way back the second time. And then we agreed to meet up when he came back. Now, Oleg was, I think, in a, uh, I think the second time he came back, he said he dealt with it better. But he needed a period of decompression because where he was... The first and second time was very much at the forefront of the war. So he was in Kharkiv when Kharkiv was getting shelled and bombed daily. Um, And in fact, he had one of his apartments that he'd rented. The first time was destroyed about two weeks after he'd left Kharkiv. So he was in a state of kind of shock as well Mm. uh, from what he'd seen and what he'd experienced. When I went to meet him, it wasn't a... uh, I was... Still toying with idea. And when was that? Was that? That was August. August. Okay, mm. so a week, couple of months before you even left. So that was yeah. like it took quite a yeah. while for you to actually. Well, I, I I think we met up 
and after we'd met and after we'd spoken and after Ole could describe the things we were doing, mm-hmm. the way they were trying to help and how how good Sunflower has been at really kind of zooming in on specific areas, on specific issues instead of being too wide ranging because I think if you're a charity especially a smaller one like Sunflower if you try and be too wide ranging you end up doing everything sort of half arsed Mm -hmm. rather than one thing really well so he was telling me about where they've been about what they were about and I think after that conversation that was when I really thought no I want to go out with this guy I want to support him Mm -hmm. I want to support the charity and I want to support uh, Ukraine um because one of, one of the most frustrating things that can come from being a bystander in something like this, especially when you feel a personal affiliation, a personal connection, you get filled with impotent rage. You get filled with, uh, with a lot of real frustration about the situation and there's nowhere for that energy to go. Mm-hmm. And so when I met Oleg, I thought, no, this this is somewhere where my frustration at what's happening and at what and at the suffering that's going on, this is where I can channel some of this. This is a person that I can trust. This is a person that I know they know what they're talking about. And this is what I want to support. And Oleg, he lives in Scotland, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Oleg's lived in Britain, I think, for about 15, 16 years. Am I right in saying that he's Russian? So Oleg's a British citizen. Okay. He's He's been a British citizen for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was born in Moscow, but okay. Oleg, I think it would be safe to say he does not consider himself Russian, and neither do I. Okay. You know, he's, he's very much of the mind, as am I, that he's a British citizen. He's lived in Edinburgh for a long time. So when you, a Scottish man, sat down in front and went, I want to come with you, what did he re- what did, how did he react? What did he say? He, he was, um, as is with a lot of things that Oleg actually does, for all he's a badass and stuff, he's, he's very, very measured. He's a measured badass. <laughs> he, he doesn't <laughs> rush into things. And he's not, he's not keen on people rushing into commitments without being 100% certain that they mean it. And that they know what they're getting into. And that they know what they're getting into, exactly. So I had, come to think, I had actually proposed them beforehand. I'd proposed them that, like, I'd be potentially interested in coming. So his way of kind of not putting the fear in me, but the reality into me was we went to um, a bar in uh, Morningside and, um, and he literally just was like... <laughs> He just dumped, like, shell shrapnel, bullets, everything onto the table in front of me. And then he was showing me pictures, and he was, like, really to try and make me understand, to yeah. comprehend the places that they were going, and the, 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 um, <laughs> the reality of the situation, you know what I mean? But surely um, that's something you won't be able to comprehend until you're there in the flesh. No, of course it's not. Yeah. But you have to give people, you owe it to someone. If they say they want to come, you owe it to them to give them as much of a... a reality a, check sort of thing. A reality yeah. check and a real impression that you can. Mm-hmm. So I think I thank Oleg for that because he didn't miss and hit the wall. He really was like, you know, this is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he was like, you can die literally on the spot. No warnings, no 
you know, no heads up, and it's just done. So I have to ask, how did your wife Victoria react when you told her? <laughs> My wife and I have a very good relationship, which is... <laughs> <laughs> she knows that I won't stand in her way of trying to do something she really wants to do. And while this one was maybe taking that to the extreme limits... <laughs> yes! <laughs> She knows me well enough to know that once I've kind of went, no, I'm going to do this, there's not really going to be talking me out of it. That was That's, one thing. And, was... and But that was one of the things that Oleg also spoke to me about. Mm -hmm. So Oleg didn't know I had a boy. And Oleg, when, he, when we were chatting, he was like, so do you have a family and stuff? And I was like, yeah, I've got my wife, I've got my kids, who at that time was uh, two and a half. And he was like, oh... And that kind of stopped Oleg in his tracks um, because he was like, uh, are you really sure about this? Because my sons are older, so if I get mahujad, if I die, it's not great because <laughs> they're both young, but they're, 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 they're 19, older. 20, yeah. I think. But they're, you know, or a wee bit older, maybe one of them's finished mm. university now. But they're older, they've got their own lives, they're kind of independent, whereas it was like, you know, your son's two and a half. Mm -hmm. He's and very it, young. And it, it was a massive thing to take into consideration. Of, of course. course it was. Um, but there was two things that kind of came out of it, which is it's fine and well looking after your own and, and thinking about your own, but well, there's plenty of two and a half year olds whose parents are getting killed in Ukraine is one thing. Uh, and the second thing is that I realised that after the book, I think, I mean, there's some reflections through the book where I kind of reflect on myself personally about my son and about imagining him in that situation. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, um, without intending to, I kind of wrote it for him as well mm. as a kind of, if you feel something, go and do something about it. But also, you know, this is how I felt as a person from Britain being there with respect to my family so he you know there was there's definitely instances where i was like i could draw that back mm -hmm. um and think you know there's people that are living this reality right now what was like the flip that you were like no this is 100 percent certain well like i say i think i think oleg was uh, it speaking to him was definitely a part of it you know and ironically oleg never said come over with me <laughs> mm. <laughs> But like I said, you meet, very rarely, you meet, and I, I don't use the term lightly, you meet inspirational characters who are doing something terrific and all they're asking for is support. All they're asking for is for people to put their weight behind them. And when I met Oleg and other people in the organisation, because there's Vasi, who's done an amazing amount, uh, Tanya and Elvira and there'll be people in Sunflower Scotland that I have yet to meet or I have met and unfortunately forgotten your name um but uh, you know there, there there's really inspiring characters within that organization and that for me is something worth supporting um and that that gave me a real sense of this is the right thing to do I'd like to start from the beginning like did you drive from Scotland I, I met Oleg in Krakow. Okay, so so I, you, I flew into Krakow uh, and met him there. Okay. Um, so this this is one thing that I haven't really told anyone about the book, but it wasn't just me and Oleg. There was actually a third person there 
who was such a moron that I wrote her out of the book. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Okay. We brought a, a, a very well-hidden narcissist with us. Oh, no. <laughs> and she got dropped from the book because I was oh, like... Oh, God. Okay. All right, you're not getting the book. Is she from Scotland? So, uh, she's from England originally. She's lived in Scotland a long time. Okay. But, um, yeah, she was, oh, an, she was a complete tit. Oh. I, I say I wrote her out, it wasn't very difficult because she contributed so little when we got there. So little. It was. I don't know what she expected. I don't know if she expected a holiday. I don't really know if she had any concept her? of... So she was working with Sunflower. Okay. And when I first met her, so her idea was to bring some aid over to Ukraine as well. And she got on board with the idea of coming back with Oleg to Ukraine or going over to Ukraine with Oleg. And... <clears throat> and my my initial impression of her was very very positive she seemed very like i'm gonna do this we'll do this and blah blah and she she came through with some aid and she she did all sorts of things and i thought right fair play um but it's as oleg says when you get into a war zone when you get into that environment it magnifies your personality 10 times over there's nowhere to hide and the traits of someone's character come out. It's an extreme circumstance. Um, and it's it's a real test of your character as a person, I think. Um, and that, unfortunately, it definitely drew out a couple of her less favourable traits. Mm -hmm. And really, yeah, magnified them. <laughs> and it became quite clear quite early on that we kind of wished that she hadn't come and she was there the whole time she was there the whole time well she was there until we got to kiev on the way back mm -hmm. and then she made some half-hatched plan there was a guy an english guy there that she connected with um before we went mm -hmm. but on facebook and um she made some half half arse plan to mm -hmm. go to meet him in Kiev and then go and stay for another few days in Ukraine um but it was all a bit ropey the mm. the, the the arrangements and stuff so <laughs> we ended up getting into Kiev during the biggest missile strike of the war where we picked up Hannah who's Tanya's mum and his name's Tanya Tanya, no, no, Tanya's um, one of the people in Sunflower Scotland. Oh, okay, right. So we, Tanya had asked of Oleg and I if we could pick up Hannah on the way back because she lived further north in the country. I forget the name of the city, so I'm not going to try and remember it. Mm. But obviously coming into the winter, with everything that had happened, her mum wanted to be evacuated and brought over to Scotland. Of so course. we agreed, obviously, to pick mm -hmm. her up in Kiev. Little did we know, the afternoon we arrived in Kiev, massive missile attack. It was a couple of days after Kherson, so it was it was mm. the Russian response to the Ukrainians having the audacity to take one of their cities back. So, um, the so we are at a gas station. Bear in mind to pick up Hannah, who then comes out. She comes across in a little pink bubble hat mm. <laughs> and she, uh, with a wee suitcase and she says to Oleg in Ukrainian I didn't see it but two rockets have flown over this gas station oh. so the gas station was shut so you're like oh 
And I'm, meanwhile, I'm getting messages. There's been massive explosions. There's been a huge power cut, blah, blah. Like, the lights are out, blah, blah. So at this moment, this woman who's made this half-arse plan to get me up with this guy who is not in Kiev, he's running late, Oleg tells her, you know, and this this is really where she, she crossed the line for me. Oleg tells her, and th- th- right, Oleg said this before we went, anything I say you follow. You've not been there, I've been there. I am in charge of this mission. Of course. And I thought, of course, <clears throat> yeah, you've been obviously. there before, you know how it works. I'm a novice, I don't know how this works. You're not going to answer So if you then. say anything, I will do it. Mm-hmm. So we went through, if we're getting shelled, we went through all these different scenarios, okay? Mm-hmm. So Oleg said to this woman, get in the van, because this is, this, she was arranging to meet this guy at the gas station, but he was still about half an hour, 40 minutes away. Get in the van. I won't drive you to meet this guy, but we cannot stay in the middle of a gas station in Kiev during a missile strike. Yes, obviously. A huge missile strike. And she refused to go. And her response to him was, I'm not making you wait here. So she put our lives at risk through her own selfishness. She was that narcissistic. Oh my God. And that, God. that for me, was one of those experiences where, like, at the time, there's no time to argue. Yeah. So, like, literally, Ole pled with her, really, for about five, ten minutes. And he's not the pleading type of guy, but he was like, really, you have to leave now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she wouldn't listen to him. Um, so so was... we had to leave. So we left me, Oleg, and Hannah while this idiot stood next to a gas station in Kiev while there was a rocket attack going on, waiting on this guy she's never met but connected with on Facebook who's still half an hour, 45 minutes from collecting her because he's running late. Great. So, uh, that is absolutely insane. <laughs> and that's the way some people behave in war zones when they're either too thick or just don't really get the reality of where they are. And that's what Oleg was worried about with me. And that was why when we spoke, he was very brutal about the reality. Mm. And that's why I agreed to follow his instruction when we went. But this woman didn't, so... So you left her? Yeah. I did consider writing a couple of bits about her in the book. And I decided, you know what? This isn't about her. Yeah, yeah, it's not about But her. it is an example of how stupid people can be in dangerous situations. Do you know what happened to her? She got picked up eventually. Okay. She got picked up eventually, and then she severed connection with Sunflower Scotland um, when she got back to Edinburgh. Excuse me? Yeah. What? Because Sunflower Scotland wanted to have an inquiry with her and be like... Yeah, obviously. What do you think you were doing in Kiev? And she just severed connection. She didn't want to have the confrontation. She didn't want to have to answer for herself. And let's say two or three days afterwards, I was uh, chatting to Oleg on the drive back. I think we were in Germany at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we're absolutely furious. Because <laughs> as I said, I'm taking a chance being there. I've got a young son at home. Mm-hmm. She's got about three kids. That's so... And there she is standing next to a gas station. I'm like, who's looking after the Bairns if you drop dead right now? That's insane. You know what I mean? So it really wasn't just selfish in terms of risking our lives, but it was risking her life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the huge impact that would have on her children. So That's insane. It was absolutely bonkers. Well, you know what? We're not going to give her any more yeah. time. Let's talk about 
when you set off. So that was what the was it the eighth of November? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Eighth of November, we set off and you met Oleg in Poland. I would have been. I think it might actually been the seventh I met him in Krakow, okay. and then the eighth we crossed over. How were you feeling? It was. It was. It was pretty bad at the airport because Victoria, God bless her, she has a way of avoiding thinking about something until sometimes it's impossible to not think about it mm -hmm. so she cracked at the airport gate um and roman was there as well oh, no. so she so it was a heavy departure but once i was in the air and stuff it was kind of i'm here now so let's go it, it was not the easiest departure <laughs> what were you expecting when you crossed the border i was expecting I was expecting it to be less than a thousand kilometers before I saw the first bomb craters and stuff. We, we, I mean, we skirted, so we went around Lviv, and I think I would have seen parts of the war in Lviv, like mm -hmm. the destruction. Um, but I did, I really anticipated, especially from, even, even though we've got friends in Ukraine, I really anticipate getting into Ukraine and finding it really depressed and you know, signs of the war maybe more frequently. That's what... But certainly people being, like, yeah. really, really broken. That was something that I found really interesting in your book when I was reading about when you entered and you were quite taken aback by the city, the, like, the first city you hit. What was the first city that you went to? So the first the first place that we... We, we first entered a village, so we, we went around Lviv. It was in Lviv Oblast. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't really... I didn't. I had very tentative plans to write this book, so I really, at that stage, wasn't, and it was the first time doing this sort of thing. So, uh, I didn't quite document everything as well as I wish I had. So we, the first village we entered, okay. <clears throat> and I remember reading in the book about how you were taken aback by how people were just like living their life normally, and you oh, yeah. said that yeah. to Oleg, and he said, "This is the one thing that people think." The Ukraine is a broken state, and it is not a broken state. No, and that not, really, no. really hit me really hard because I yeah. like the way that our media is like the things that our media is showing us. I'm like, what we're imagining is a, a country that's completely destroyed. That mm. there's nothing left. That there's probably bodies on the side of the road. That like there's dead animals. Like you know, what I mean, that we're like yeah. give we're given this extreme view, and. Mm. I could feel the anger from Oleg in the book being like, we're not broken state. We're still here. We're still yeah. going, we're still working. And I found that really touching because it's not at all what I had imagined. Absolutely. I mean, that was, so that was kind of, we, we, we went to a village in Lviv Oblast. Yeah, that was the first day. Yeah. And that, so that was on the way to Zhitomer. And, um, and a, a beautiful wee village big man-made lake i still remember seeing the the boats and a couple of yachts and stuff in this lake yachts. tied up to the pier mm. okay <laughs> uh, yeah not poor not poor really not poor um beautiful wee village and then we go into this shop to the bureau de change and the shop is packed with people with food with everything and i was like and obviously that that so they were the times I wasn't quiet. I think I said to you before I was only there for a short period, but the amount you can learn if you keep your mouth shut and your eyes open is phenomenal, because you're observing, you're taking things in, you're taking what people say in as well. Um, but obviously at times I was asking questions because I was like, 
inquisitive but and also, also you can't shut up <laughs> yeah well, as, you can, I, as you can tell by this podcast yeah i, I, I don't mind talking um, <laughs> but the what i you know that i had to ask questions sometimes that were just so obvious mm-hmm. i guess to him and um when we get when we went there i was just like I, I can't believe there's all this stuff here and he was like well yeah you know most people think you're going to cross over the border from poland or from hungary or romania or many other countries that other, that border ukraine and you're just going to meet these people on their hands and knees you know groveling um for food and for whatever and i think in opening the sort of 20 25 pages that's one of the things that i try to grapple with and and to try and break that perception about ukraine because the, the idea that ukraine is broken and the idea and we might as well go into it now that sending food to ukraine is sensible is unbelievable to be honest it's so incredibly stupid what you've got and what i got to appreciate much more when i was there You've got somewhere that is the breadbasket of the world. If you look at their agricultural numbers, uh, they're off the chart. And (laughs) what you've got is the world sending free food to a country that makes surplus food so much that now there's parts of the world that are in a food crisis because Ukraine can't get its food out. And they... (laughs) We're sending free food to a country that creates all this food that's whose economy is about to retract by 30%. Is it not that the Ukrainian soil is, like, incredible and anything can grow in it? Yeah, it's very, very fertile. Yeah. So it's black soil. So we're sending food to somewhere that, does, that like, we're actually crippling their economy because we're putting people out of business yeah. by handing out free food. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm absolutely furious about it mm-hmm. because what you've really got... You imagine when the war started, everyone's in shock, as we discussed before. Um, you're trying as a government or as organizations to deal with this, to put plans into action um, on the hoof, really, because I don't think anyone really anticipated, well, not in the West. I think other countries in the East are less naive than the West. But in the West, you know, we were still like, oh, Putin won't go to war. Um, yeah, we were, yeah. So we were caught denial. off guard. We were caught off guard. It was convenient. To think that Russia would yeah. keep to its word of not in vain. So they <laughs> we we had plans that were really done in the hoof. But what I've seen in the last year and a half, since the start of the war, or seventeen months, absolutely no development, absolutely no evolution of the plan. And I'm absolutely furious with people in the Scottish government, people in the British government, and other organizations that should know better that are basically wasting the generosity of Scottish people on crap that that Ukraine does not need. And it's absolutely criminal, absolutely criminal, that organisations and people are still getting encouraged to send free food to Ukraine. Um, It's not just shocking, it is, you know, (laughs) it's just pure neglect of duty. Um, from people that should be doing better who should be leading and should be informing people but um, they're not so Scottish people whose generosity cannot be in question 
you know, I found it very heartwarming how much Scottish people have given. Oh, a lot of that generosity is being wasted because we're not being informed properly about what is appropriate aid, what we should be sending, what Ukraine actually needs. So because people first associate disasters like this with, well, we need to make sure they have the basics, so they need to have shelter, they need to have food, we need to have sanitary products, etc., etc. The natural inclination for people when they're not more informed is, well, let's send food to make sure they don't starve, to make sure that people are actually healthy, families, etc. But because that's actually having the opposite impact on the country, we are creating more harm than we are good by sending food. And that that's a very, very difficult thing to recognise because that means there's an incompetence at such a level in organisations and in governmental departments that are meant to be looking after this that is absolutely unacceptable. Unacceptable. So what can we do? For me, when it comes to aid, and we, we discovered that while we were there, if you have good communication with Ukrainian government, for example, or Ukrainian charity organisations, you should be able to compile a list of aid that is needed in the country. Mm -hmm. So Ukraine still needs support. Of course it does. But not with food. So stop wasting your money on food. Mm -hmm. Stop wasting your time with food. And clothing. Mm -hmm. What are we doing sending clothing over there? Yeah. And unless you get photographic evidence of where that food or that clothing is gone... I can almost guarantee you it's been sold at the other end. Because that's what happens during war. It magnifies everything. It x-rays everything. And Ukraine, God bless it, um, it is quite a corrupt country. Mm -hmm. The same way the UK is a corrupt country. But yeah, when war comes, it, it's, for many people, it breeds uncertainty. But for some people... It creates opportunity. So there's been, there's definitely been Ukrainians at the other end that have been gathering these goods, that have been getting this food, that have been doing that, and they've been selling it. So when you were there, where were you getting the food from? Were you buying food locally in Ukraine, or you had you brought it over from Scotland? No, no, we bought from a wholesaler in Kharkiv. Okay. And even, I mean, this this is why communication is vital, right? So. Daniel on the ground in Kharkiv as a native. War changes so quickly that you need to have communication with people that know what you're talking about because basic goods or essential goods or what is needed changes very quickly. Mm -hmm. So some of the goods that we did bring, so there's like bags that were put together for uh, like maternity bags that were put together for like new mothers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even the generator we had in the back that went to the army they, we realized after we got to Kharkiv, we could actually bought them in Ukraine. Ukraine. But two months ago, before you, that, you wouldn't have been able to. No chance. So that's how quickly war changes. That even people that are involved in a very intimate level can be caught on the hop mm -hmm. because they're going, oh, Christ, right? Mm -hmm. I know not to bring food, but I didn't know not to bring this or to bring that. Mm -hmm. So that, that for me, shows there's been such a lack of development, such a lack of evolution when it comes to humanitarian response to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the people, and dare I say all the people um, that are involved in the Ukrainian response team haven't even been into Ukraine since the start of the war. 
So you've got people with very big opinions mm -hmm. who don't know what they're talking about, who are actually the people responsible for guiding the humanitarian response of Scotland who literally haven't been there. That must enrage you. It's it absolutely pathetic. Me. It's, it's pathetic. And um, Oleg reached out to the Scottish government and offered his expertise and his experiences and offered to actually give them more information as he went back. Mm -hmm. And he got the Scottish government responded by saying, we do not encourage people to enter Ukraine just now, so we will not be supporting small NGOs. And they weren't interested in getting information from Oleg. So you've literally got people leading, people that are controlling the narrative and controlling policy who are less informed than me, a waiter that spent eight days in Ukraine. How ignorant is that? And how disappointing is that? It's more terrifying than anything else. And how much are we then letting down Ukraine as yeah, well? Yeah, of course. And, and I feel very much for Scottish people that haven't just given aid, but also taken Ukrainians in, that have really got involved in this. Mm -hmm. They've been let down as well in a huge way because all those times they've sent stuff and thought, I'm doing the right thing, through no fault of their own, mm -hmm. they've actually made the problem worse. Do you think you'll go back? I would... <laughs> I'm on a waiter's wage. So... <laughs> So it's hard to imagine being able to afford to go back because when me and Oleg went, we none of the expenses were charged to charity. So all of the the fuel and the hotels and our food, etc., were paid for by us. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's it's quite expensive, but obviously a price that was willing to pay. Um, you ever thought about starting a fundraiser? It's a tough one. Would you want to So go basically, back? I'd like to go back. Okay. For sure. I'd love to go back. Um, and at the moment, uh, Sunflower Scotland's in the process of um, buying a refrigeration unit, which will go down, I'm not sure about the region. I think it might be Zaporozhye, but mm -hmm. it, I might be wrong about that. And that refriger refrigeration unit truck type thing has been requested because with their connections in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, because of bodies. So bodies, obviously, during the summer have been festering and it's very, very bad for disease. But also with the rains of the winter and stuff coming, it washes bacteria and other things into the rivers. Of course. A lot of the soldiers are drinking from the rivers directly. So you're getting dysentery and other sort of sicknesses uh, among the soldiers, mm. which is obviously... Mm. can have disastrous consequences how close did you get to the front line the closest we got to the front, front line was two kilometers that was uh, Luhansk um, and, and how was, was it there uh, well we didn't <laughs> in hindsight it was quite funny at the time it really wasn't um, but we, we ended up there was a, a car that was parked across the road uh, on this yeah, this this uh, wee country road, and we there was a bit of convoy, about eight cars actually, and military car parked across the road, and we're like, okay, I guess we'll be stopping. So I I actually was gonna get go out and get a cigarette, and I opened the door and literally had a guy bark at me in Ukrainian, <laughs> and I was like, okay, then Daniel was next to me, is like, no leave. I was like, okay, I'll just <laughs> sit here. Um, and then there was shell fire to the left of us. 
and it was up on this like field uh like not really close a few hundred yards away and i was like that's uh that's a bit close and i turned to daniel and i was like is that russian or ours because everyone looks really calm if that's not ours um and he was like i'm not sure all right that's that's reassuring okay thanks daniel next time lie um and (laughs) (laughs) and then he then a a couple of minutes later we realized it was actually ukrainians testing out the armory and the 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 ammo and etc etc uh and this guy eventually waved us through pulled into the side waved us through and we were passing a group of soldiers I don't know if they just did it for a laugh, but they, they literally opened fire with a machine gun just as we passed. So I absolutely shit my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, we need to stop for a cigarette now. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I'm absolutely shiting it. But yeah, so the, the Russians were just over the hill from where we were. Okay. But it was it was one of the areas where it kind of, it had been one of the areas where they'd retaken a lot of land in the, the two months leading up to when we went. So September, October offensive. And um, I think, although it can be very misleading, I think the fighting there was much more tit for tat. It wasn't really full on aggression Mm -hmm. because it was almost the Ukrainians were trying to resettle their new line Mm -hmm. and the Russians were trying to resettle theirs as well. So it felt very Mm -hmm. stalemate-y. And can I ask... Where was the worst place you saw that had been affected by by the Russians? That's quite hard to say um, because there was places where there was more destruction um, and probably a lot more dead people. Did you see any dead people? No. Okay. No, not while we were there. The, because the front had moved so quickly, so the, there's a very... So everyone's got a role to play. Mm-hmm in the war and so a lot of what if people aren't fighting they're doing something else i was talking i talk about the maintenance workers in ukraine who have done an incredible job because they've repaired jobs repaved them and done them within like lightning speed we're talking Mm -hmm. like two three four days Mm -hmm. um and they make sure that the electricity is still going they make sure that you know all this unbelievable work and there's other people that also have gone out and taken uh, dead bodies off of the fields including russian ones um to avoid disease Mm. to avoid any potential health risks that might come with it um but also out of decency as Mm. well so a lot of the regions we ended up being in were a couple of months after they'd been uh, liberated Mm -hmm. so no i didn't see any and i didn't fancy hunting about either (laughs) you know um and a lot i mean so i mean the worst the worst area i was in i think just in terms of populace would have been northern saltivka Mm -hmm. which is in the north part of kharkiv which was absolutely horrendous That, that was like walking through hell on earth and that was you know you're talking giant tenement blocks that are I don't know, eight, nine, ten stories and just literally just ripped apart. I mean, you could see right through them. You could see into living rooms. You could, you know, you had to shield your eyes against the sun, sunset because it'd be going right through the building. It was that ripped apart. And that went on for many miles. I mean, we didn't have time the day that we went to see part of Northern Saltifco. We didn't have time to go and see it all. 
but the estimates in the population of that area is between 100 and 500,000. The the the, uh, the border for North and South Tifka is very undefined, really. How many Ukrainians have lost their lives throughout this? <laughs> no idea. Really? Yeah, and I mean that one of the one of the things that we discuss is that numbers are important. They're all fine and well. It's good to know the scale and it's good to appreciate the amount of people that have died and the amount of damage that's been done. But you shouldn't focus on numbers too much. You shouldn't focus on the the math mm. of the war because it can desensitize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up kind of being much more conscious of looking at the destruction and speaking to people about what they'd witnessed. Uh, the wider ramifications. I mean, that that was another reason that me and Oleg never spoke about war movements, about unit movements, about what we thought would happen in the war. That's not really chat that was very interested in, neither was he. Because when you get down to a personal level, it becomes a horrible, massive idea that you kind of go, I don't want to talk about this. This is, <laughs> this is just... It starts to move away from the personal impact whether soldier or civilian mm. and it starts to move more towards kind of making it more digestible and talking about you know fantasies of where the army's going to go or how the war's going to yeah. play out is just that it's a fantasy but it's not a fantasy it's a reality so it didn't feel appropriate to talk about it of and course. we didn't learn about the numbers of people who died but My. northern saltivka will be remembered for a long time after this war because we're talking about nurseries and hospitals and medical centers that have been blown up and i went to one of the nurseries that was there you know and they had flowers bouquets of flowers laid out on the little beds in the dormitory um and it was just horrendous Mm. um and i always remember we took some photos around there we we were very very quiet there because the, the the sheer scale was unimaginable and it was something that really stops you in your tracks mm-hmm. um and i remember we were taking pictures because i wanted to obviously document it <laughs> all the windows are blown out so when you when you get a shell that lands on the street obviously if it's a building it, it hurts that building but the shock wave usually destroys all the windows in the surrounding buildings so saltivka there was not a pane of glass you know um mm-hmm. so these these flats are not only destroyed there's no glass we're taking photos and a little old woman about three stories up came to the edge of the balcony and looked down at me and i was absolutely gobsmacked and then she scurried back inside you think she's still living there she was still living there so there were still people living there and that was with the onset of winter coming they've got no windows no heating obviously presumably no electricity so it was uh, astonishing to actually see like there's still people actually living here mm. you know what i mean so northern saltifica was horrific but you know we we went through many towns that have been just raised pretty much villages you know vilkivka was was another one uh that will stay in my memory because that was <laughs> the bizarrest thing you know like the whole thing flattened except this one house and a one guy working away in his garden like nothing had happened mm. and i was like this is this is nuts yatskivka you know coming down the hill towards yatskivka uh Kopi- is it kopiansk was lefty <laughs> sorry to any ukrainians out there that have had to listen to that um 
that was that's another part that just outside Kofiance, which has just been leveled. Didn't even see one house there that was standing. Korilivska, which was again that I mean that was almost worse than Saltivka because you could see where the floors used to be and it's just a pile of rubble. So I'm assuming that it just collapsed under some shelling. Um we didn't go into Izum as much because the military commander that we spoke to in Izum was on the outskirts of the town, so next to the river Oskil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Izium is where there's been mass graves found, so there's been three or four mass graves in Izium, um, all of which count over two or three hundred people in them. So, um, it depends. There's just there's just variations of terribleness. <laughs> there's not really one you can pinpoint and go, mm. that was the worst. And what's the situation now? Because obviously you went in November. What's changed? Um, not a great deal, to mm. be honest. I think the Ukrainians are obviously on their well-documented counter-offensive down in the southeast of the country, mm-hmm. um, which is horrendous. You know, that's going to take a long time because the Russians have built a lot of uh, defences and they've mined everywhere. I mean, they've mined everywhere. So when we went down to Zoom, the road that we took was very heavily mined. Mm-hmm. And there was two volunteers that were killed there a week after we'd been there on the road. So the mining in um, Ukraine is horrific. You couldn't pay me enough to walk through a Ukrainian forest for the next 40 years. There will not be a place in Ukraine. I mean, there'll be places in the West. But I mean, if we're talking Eastern Ukraine, right in the heart, of the of the war in northern Ukraine, there will not be a place there that I would w- set foot without knowing it's been swept to mines mm-hmm. because they're so widespread. Because the Russians have kind of went, you know, fuck it. If we can't have it now, they can you. So let's just mine the hell out of it, and you might advance. You might even manage to push us out, but we are going to tear your your country apart in the process. The situation now is just. Uh, truly dreadful. How do you feel? <clears throat> I don't know really. I mean, we and Oleg, I, I don't think I actually put in the book, me and Oleg, her thoughts are that Ukraine unfortunately won't win the war. So it's not that Russia will win the war, if you can call it winners or losers when it gets to the stage it has. I think there'll be a deal made eventually and uh, Ukraine's going to have to cede territory. Um... I personally have the feeling of kind of like, well, that's obviously not an ideal scenario, but I want the war to finish as soon as possible. Mm. So I feel very uh, conflicted about the whole thing because, yeah, you know, it's it's the civilians that we really went to speak to and it's always the civilians that really suffer. Mm-hmm. It's always the civilians that get put into the line of fire and, you know, have bombs dropped on them, really. The soldiers, you know, are unbelievable in Ukraine. We met many of them and they're very inspirational characters, quite quite phenomenal people for the civilians is disaster. And I mean, that that's another, that kind of segues into another part of my anger and my frustration. We've taken many refugees from Ukraine and I hope every single one of them has been made to feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Ever since they've set foot on Scottish soil, I hope that they feel safe and secure, which is a basic human right, safe and secure. 
um but it's another massive thing that i'm frustrated about there was hurdles to getting onto you how's the ukrainian scheme that by de facto really meant that if you were poor ukrainian if you didn't have access to the internet if you didn't speak english you ain't coming to britain so there's many parts of Ukraine that we went to and I thought, you ain't getting on the house how's the Ukrainian scheme. So we ended up taking a lot of people and again, this is absolutely nothing against Ukrainians who have come here. Not in a million years. You'll not meet anyone more supportive than me of Ukrainian refugees and of Ukrainian people. But we took people who were affluent who spoke English, who had access to the internet, who could afford to leave the country in a way that many Ukrainians can't even imagine. So there is many people in Ukraine, the refugees, so this isn't against Ukrainian refugees here. This is for the Ukrainians that remain. Mm -hmm. There is thousands of Ukrainians who need help and who will not receive it because they are not rich enough and they don't have the English or any of these things in order to get help. And so what I ask of the Scottish government or the British government or organisations that may be dealing with this, what have you done about that? Absolutely nothing. Zero. So if you aren't going to fact find, if you're not going to go and really try to reach people that are in the most desperate situations, especially in the east of Ukraine... Because the east of Ukraine, believe me, that is the red zone. Mm -hmm. The whole of Ukraine is amber. Mm -hmm. But you cannot compare someone, and, and, and I don't want to compare people. It's, this, is, you know, this isn't about meritocracy because everyone in Ukraine suffered. But please don't compare someone who's been in Kiev, for example, to someone that is in Kharkiv. Mm -hmm. Or someone that's in Barova or Kopyansk. You know, uh, or Izum. Mm-hmm or Zaporozhye, or Kherson. These are the regions that need the most help, that need the most help. And the lack, again, of evolution of initiative to do anything about that reality for thousands of Ukrainians, that makes me furious as well. And for the people listening that feel a bit helpless and don't really know what to do, what can we do? The first thing I think that would be very helpful is put your faith in charities and know what they're doing. People mm -hmm. like Sunflower Scotland, and there will be other organisations out there. Mm -hmm. Sunflower Scotland's the one that I met. They know what they're talking about. They've got networks on the ground. They know people in Ukraine right now who are doing work. Mm -hmm. They're the type of organisations you should speak to. Mm -hmm. Don't bother with the Red Cross. Don't bother with the UN. Don't bother with the big corporations because they've used this... Um, they use a blanket approach. Mm -hmm. So let's treat Ukraine like it's Somalia and just pump loads of free food in. Mm -hmm. That'll help. Let's pump loads of free clothes into the country. That'll help. That so they've actually treated... So the big corporations, the huge charities, have just treated Ukraine like it would any other country. Mm -hmm. And that, that, again, I don't know if it's laziness or ignorance. The same with the Scottish government, the same with the British government, the same with other organisations. I don't know if it's laziness or ignorance, mm -hmm. but either way, it's bloody unacceptable. Of course. 
Um, and so I think with Sunflower Scotland, I found a charity I knew I could trust and I could see where the money was going. And now you've been yourself. So you've and I've seen been it myself. firsthand. Yeah. You've done it firsthand. And they have evidence for everything that goes to places. And they're based in Edinburgh? Or, yeah, yeah, they're based, they're in, based Edinburgh. in Edinburgh. And I wanted to ask, what was it that the Ukrainians and the soldiers kept saying about Putin? What was their little saying? <laughs> what, fuck Putin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there was like a, what was it? There was like a full sentence. Oh, well, if it's about the Russian army, that was quite a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, uh, Russia once had the second best army in the world. Now it's got the second best army in Ukraine. Um, it was indicative of quite a lot of the humour mm. that the, the soldiers had. Um, having met civilians and met soldiers... I actually think that if we're talking about mental health, I actually think a lot of the soldiers have got the best mental health in Ukraine just now because they have a purpose. They have their their brotherhood with other soldiers. Um, I found their company very relaxed compared to a lot of the civilians. A lot of the civilians mm. were very on edge, understandably, of course. Of course. Um, but they were always making jokes. Yeah, I saw a lot of it, like, fuck Putin, go... F- they kept saying, like, Russia, go fuck yourself, or something like that. Ah, it no, it was Snake Island. That was near the start of the war. Mm-hmm. So that was a unit that was on Snake Island, and the communique between them had been released mm-hmm. because it was a Russian Navy ship that was demanding their surrender. Now, the, the, the <laughs> Snake Island might have some strategic or tactical use that i'm not aware of it's actually in ukrainian hands again now but um snake island is a spit of land i mean it it really it really is a a ridiculous thing you know think of a ukrainian craggy island you know i mean it's 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 literally just something that's you know you could probably walk across it in about half an hour Mm -hmm. but for some reason the russians have got into their head right we need to take snake island right so a Russian naval ship told the Ukrainian soldiers to surrender or they would open fire. And obviously they've not got the kind of firework, you know, they haven't got the firepower to fire back at this naval ship. And after a brief pause, the Ukrainian soldier replied over the radio, radio Russian warship, go fuck yourself. And that has become a synonymous thing, that, uh, like a saying, a quote that is just, spread across the country it set the tone for ukraine's uh resistance and resilience in the face of uh, russia that's that's what it did i have one last thing to ask you i hope so because i really need the toilet <laughs> <laughs> i would love if you signed my book of course I have here. <laughs> here you go yeah of course i will <laughs> thank you <laughs> And for anyone who would like to buy uh, David's book, it's on Amazon and all the money goes to, is it Sunflower Scotland? Yeah, it goes directly to the charity. It goes directly to Sunflower Scotland. And honestly, an amazing book. I honestly really, really loved it. As much as it's obviously a horrible thing to read, it's something that people should read. I hope so. I hope so. I wanted it to be something that did Ukrainians justice. Of course. Um, I will add as well that there's quite a big, I don't know if I'd want to describe it as a twist at the end of the book, um, which 
might change <laughs> a few things. Okay. But that that's that's how I'll leave that. A little teaser for the reader. <laughs> David, I love you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I love you too, guys. Thank you for having me on. You're so incredibly welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are.